0: Hello, sex Sorry. pensioner in the making, <laughs> uh, Hannah Levy's very Familiar jumps on the desk. Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 258 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and one of the three quarters. That sounds like maths that figures for me. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's great. What was wrong with that statement? Nothing at all. We haven't got a new section this week, there's no Bush Telegraph, but I did read that a quarter of people polled in the UK think that covid was a conspiracy theory to take control by the government a
1: quarter jesus christ a lot isn't it wowzers still if like eamon holmes you've got an inquiring mind you know don't know if you remember that about the 5g masts do you remember that when he was like look i'm not so i'm just saying i've got an inquiring mind you know all right eamon you do you inquire privately don't say yes to a poll yeah
2: that's the british way yeah (laughs) Well, yeah, talking to not having a Bush Telegraph, I'm Hannah Dunlevy, and the last thing I would want to do is cause a by-election.
0: Why are you in danger of causing a by-election, <laughs> Dunleavy? What have you been up to this time?
2: Yeah, well, there's no Bush Telegraph, so you'll never find out. I mean, what a week. There's been arrests all over the place. There's been resignations and the end of Mad Nads. Nadine Dorries, wows us.
1: And indeed, if we are speaking of corruption, Silvio Berlusconi. Yeah.
2: That is not a surprise to anyone ever in the history of mankind, surely. What, that he's died? I mean, was it was old, always inevitable, he? I suppose. Oh, I thought you meant that he was corrupt. Oh, right. No, no, <laughs> no,
1: are, no, 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 no. no, I was just segueing seamlessly to, <laughs> to another okay. corrupt individual. Not that i was saying Nadine Dorries is corrupt, just thick, I think.
0: There's many, quote, sinister reasons why she didn't make it into the House of Lords. Yeah,
1: she thinks it's because she's uh, working class. Yeah. Uh, So that's not it. That's not it, Nadine. I suppose it could be, couldn't it? But I don't think it is, is it? Oh, Nadine. Oh, Nadine. Moving on. uh, I'm Jen Offord. No, I suppose it is topical. I was going to say in less topical news, but it's quite topical for me. I am the mother of a three-year-old. Happy birthday, Lyra. Oh, time. Doing its thing again. It's sort of crazy that she's three. I know. It's all happened quite quickly, hasn't it? Well, no, it's taken three years, Jen. It's just how how it works. (laughs) (laughs) I think it does
2: work like this, but I think the fact that basically my brain only now registers events as happening either pre or post pandemic. It does seem obviously like it can't be three years because that means that I've compressed the last three years into one year in my
0: mind. Ah, uh, you know, time is a social construct, isn't it? Does move quickly, especially if you're a Tory minister. It seems interminable for the rest of us, though, doesn't
2: it? <laughs> Maybe that's why it's been dragging. Because it's just like if we still got this government, if we still got this government, if we still got this government,
0: it's been thirteen
1: years.
0: Yeah, drops diamond into ocean. Huh? So more time.
1: Coming up, I chat to Jessie Marion Davis and Hannah Jane Walker, musical director and composer and librettist of the new song cycle, Herring Girls, Greater Than We Are Alone, which kicks off the First Light Festival in Lowestoft this weekend.
0: I chat with much-loved, much-lauded author Liz Hyder about her new novel, The Illusions, which explores the crossover between the golden age of magic and early moving pictures. And we also chat about the women heavily involved in both, but left in the shadows of history. Until
3: now.
1: Da-da-da. <laughs> There's netball, tennis and more in this week's Jenny Off the Blocks. And can we separate the artists from the art or the pensioners from the sex? <laughs> in this week's Rated or Dated, we're watching Rosemary's Baby. Da-da-da.
0: Lynn, they're satanic
1: sex people. I'm joined by Jessie Marion Davis. Hello. And Hannah Jane Walker. Hello. Musical director and composer and lubricant of Herring Girls Greater Than We Are Alone. The piece has been commissioned by theatre company High Tide to open the First Light Festival on Lowestoft Beach on the 17th of June. Thank you both very much for coming to chat to me today. Much pleasure. I've got a technical questions first. The piece is described as a song cycle. What does that mean?
4: Great question. I am still not entirely sure I could give you a dictionary definition, but as the composer of it, I'll give it a go. And then and Hannah, if you want to jump in, please do. Essentially, a song cycle is a set of songs that in some way link together to tell a story. And in our song cycle, the music runs um, from beginning to end through six different tunes, but they kind of all uh, merge into one. So hopefully the audience will feel like they've they've gone on a journey and they've been uh, taken by the hand, metaphorically, through through a world or to a certain degree a story.
1: I don't want to raise expectations too high, but is it a bit like Beyonce's Renaissance album in that respect? (laughs) It just sort of like goes into the next song. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, let's go, yeah. Like you've been on the best journey ever, or at least (laughs) I do. Okay, great. How did this come about and and what made you want to be involved in it?
4: I was approached by High Tide Theatre Company with this project, The Herring Girls, and immediately I knew I wanted to be a part of it. It's lots of things that I hold dear. So I suppose writing for a large amount of voices, taking up their space on stage, voices who aren't um, necessarily trained professionally, but who give their time to sing in community choirs. I run my own community choir in London called Lips, and this was a real great opportunity to work with community choirs in Lower I love the sound of groups of people together who want to be there. And I think that appealed to me. I'd never heard of the Herring Girls, That appealed to me, the story of these incredible, hardworking women who were doing something quite unusual at the time, being away from home and working long hours and sticking together as a group, as outsiders in in different spaces. That appealed to me. Also, just the chance to write a a piece with a new writer and meeting Hannah through this has been really incredible.
3: So my work is all based around words because i'm a writer Mm -hmm. and i work in lots of different forms and the main thing that i really care about is accessibility and literature like i come from a family where I'm one of four siblings and my other three siblings, like have never read a book in their lives and they wouldn't, and they feel literature is not for them. And so my like big thing that I really care about is like, literature should include as many people as possible. And that means going to where the audiences are and like thinking about the form and meeting them in whatever form people want to engage in. And music is so good at doing that in a different kind of way because you wouldn't even know necessarily it was literature because it's it's live and it's happening in a really different kind of way. And so I think that's what really attracted me to it is that it's like a free festival on a beach with like a big audience. And I was like, great. Yeah, that's what I love. It's literature by stealth. And also then I met the team at High Tide. and I met Jessie and that was so great because it's a female-led organisation. And I was really interested in working with new collaborators and looking at like different practices. And so that was really refreshing too, to be like, oh, OK, this will be really interesting to learn how to do because it's the first time that I've actually written in this form before. So that was a really fun and appealing challenge to take on. And Jessie's been a delight to work with. And that's so nice to meet collaborators who you go, yeah, I understand how your brain works. That feels really fun.
1: Herring girls or the herring lasses, as they were sometimes known, were groups of women who travelled the east coast of the UK following herring migration throughout the year. And basically what would happen is the men would catch the fish and the women would then like preserve them. Can you tell me a little bit about who the herring girls were and what life would have been like for them?
3: Our understanding of who the herring girls were is that they were traditionally women and girls from Scotland um, and that they were recruited from their villages. They were like recruiters who went around and sort of said, come and do this job. Like you'll earn lots of money. You can go back home with more money than you would have earned, like if you stayed in your villages. Mm -hmm. And they literally moved down the the coast of England to wherever the herrings were. Our understanding, like we did a lot of research, a lot of really fun research, some visiting places, lots of reading, lots of conversations about the history of the herring girls and our understanding is that it was a hard life like a working life like real grafters like it was proper work really long days far away from home a lot of the time but as i said earning more money than you might have earned back in your village so there was like an incentive to do it and lots of the literature and these sort of uh, oral accounts about them say that they were singing all the time it was a very um, singing as a sort of work method and they were knitting all the time. Some of those like descriptions of them knitting while they were walking down the street. And there's other descriptions of like the visceral sort of smell of these women because they were working with fish. They were groups of women who were away from their homes in communities that they, they most of them weren't from. And that's interesting to think about, being in a new place where you're not from and you have a culture that you're bringing with you, but you're also sort of integrating into that community a little bit as well. All the descriptions of them describe them as being very together and unified and the fun of it as well as the work of it. So they described as, and I, I'm not a big fan of this description, but they're described as working like men or they were working like women but it's just by the standards of the literature that was around that at the time, like that's considered to be like a massive compliment. Uh, so very hard workers and joyful and very mixed in ages. So like they're called the Herring Girls, Mm -hmm. but there were older women and younger women, um, more younger women, but there were older women there as well.
1: Would they have been like chaperoned?
3: What I've read, there's no, I haven't read anything which is like, this was the condition, but what was gestured at was that there were some more experienced women who'd maybe done a couple of seasons Mm -hmm. who might be slightly more in charge, whether they were paid more for that. I don't know. I'd like to think so. But there was like a story that I read about somebody being late for work and like one of the older women disciplining her for that. There was some kind of hierarchy within the groups which was keeping them cohesive.
4: I think in terms of how unusual it might have been at the time, because the herring industry ran... I don't know the exact start date, but these lassies, as they described, were coming down from the late 1800s. And like the big boom of the herring industry was 1913. So it's an interesting point around chaperoning. And I think these women, they did challenge local thinking around what it meant to be a woman in the sense that they were moving around in gangs to a certain degree. Gang is a strong word, like crews, you know, friends, mm-hmm. like Communities together and they would be at large in the community. I, I remember we, we spoke to um, one of the singers in the choir. He used to be a fisherman, uh, David, and he was telling me how these women used to, they worked really hard. They also played hard. So they'd go into the pubs and they'd drink their uh, whiskey chasers with pints and they'd smoke pipes and do all these things that perhaps the local women didn't do. And they didn't, I think, have male chaperones with them I think in that sense with their own autonomy having their own pay by the day were a really interesting community at the time.
1: So I wanted to talk a little bit about how you went about creating the music how did you approach the task of putting this history i guess into a song on the words side of things did you use testimony of the women because these herring girls were around until like the the late 70s when basically herring fishing was banned Mm, because of over over overfishing? and i wondered jesse from your side of things like were you inspired by the kind of music the songs that they were singing as they were working did you kind of bring that into it as well
4: yeah certainly I've drawn inspiration from one particular theme that I think comes from an old Scottish folk theme, and then we've used that sort of we've woven that through the piece and set sort of new words to that so that there's a kind of authentic flavor and voice of the of these Scottish women who sang while they worked
3: so it was a very collaborative process in terms of like how the words and the music kind of came to coexist and Jesse was really helpful in helping me figure out you know how phrasing works in terms of fitting it to music and things like that so it was really collaborative and so we met and we had big conversations based on what high tide had sort of said to us was their preferences already and we talked about like well what is the relevance of the strike like what what legacy did that leave what does it mean for us today and we consumed a lot of kind of Testimony documents in various versions. Listen to a lot of things. Watch a lot of videos. Uh, went to museums. And firstly, although that literature and that information does exist, there definitely could be more <laughs> in, in in other places. Like I don't think there's quite enough about the Herring Girls out there. And secondly, it was finding the right lens to look through as to like, hey, this is why you, it's relevant to think about the Herring Girls today. This is why it's important to understand what they meant. And so. We had lots of conversations about that. And once we'd figured out what that thing is, that's how we then decided what material to include in it and therefore like which pieces of voices. And actually we found that we didn't want a piece that was too dense in historical detail because it would have been very easy to get stuck in that and just just provide a thing where it was like, here is a piece where it's just voice, 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 voice. But we wanted to really go like, why learn about how important the herring girls were? What What is important about them? So that's yeah. how we kind of you came to focus the lens of it and therefore then think about what to include
1: in it this piece is based the protest by the women in 1936 which were on lowest off beach right so you're doing it where the protest actually took took place which is amazing i think and that was over there were strikes over paying conditions it strikes over paying conditions is obviously something that we're all used to hearing about at the moment because they're happening literally everywhere across <laughs> across our public sector was it hard to look at what happened then without thinking about what is happening in the world at the moment? Or did you actually want to bring that side out of it? Did you want to make the link between the two?
3: We decided very much to make the link between the two because, to be honest, there could have been a version, I suppose, where we didn't draw a link between the two, but it felt so relevant and so pertinent to Mm -hmm. so many things. Going on today, and so it is a piece which shifts between two time zones. So it begins in the world of the herring girls, and then it looks at sort of like how we gather as groups of people now, and what's happening in the world now around the rules around whether we're allowed to gather and things Mm. now. But felt really important to us to draw a through line between us because it very much felt like the herring girls and what they did. They were working examples for us about lots of things, but one of the things that they showed us was. What can happen when a group of people unite to try to make something be different for themselves? And that felt really clear and like something we wanted to celebrate. So I think it's about celebrating that they came together and they did that and that we have the potential to do that ourselves now, despite some things that are going on.
1: <laughs>
4: hmm. Yeah, quite. <laughs> One of the things I'm loving about this project is the multi-generational aspect of it so we've got a youth choir an incredible youth choir in fact two youth choirs group a uh, who work with britain peers arts and who are a brilliant group of young people ranging from age 8 to 18 they're brilliant they're wonderful and they meet in Lowestoft. but there are other group a's around the local area and then kesingland primary school choir who are joining us as well and these young people provide a really important uh, sound and energy to the piece But Hannah and I also worked with all the choirs, nearly all the choirs, to generate the material. And we looked at protest and the power of protest and and what it means to have a voice with the young people. And that really resonated with them. We had conversations about what they might protest for. And that's a real pluralist response. Right. So what are all the different things that mean something to you, young people? And one of the centre, the sort of middle point of the cycle is a celebration of our right to have our voices heard. And that was written lyrically and also melodically with the young people. So they literally sat down. I was at the keyboard and they sang to me how they wanted the words to go. And that's something that's it's really important to my practice. And I know Hannah does a lot of that in her work as well. So actually kind of collaborating with people performing to write the piece is really central to this. It feels really important certainly yeah to me that we've we've drawn a link between the the herring girls and their bravery in standing up and stopping the work downing the tools taking up the knitting needles and saying we're not going to gut fish we're going to stay here peacefully and we're just going to hold the line (laughs) until we get the thing we need which is pay it feels brilliant to have young voices in that as well
3: And also what Jesse's so great at doing is bringing groups of people together to sing. And that's very moving to listen to. And it feels like an action in its own right because you're listening to this group of people like, who've come out of their houses to like practice and rehearse and to be there week in, week out, to let us, the audience, have this experience. And we were really interested in the link between that and the fact that the Herring Girls sang all the time as like a sort of work motivator and group identity thing. And so we were really interested in like what it means to come together to sing. And so... The title kind of came out of that. It was something somebody said in one of the workshops, which is greater than we are alone. And it was like one voice you can hear, but lots of voices together, what that creates as a thing and what that's like to listen to. So... That felt
1: really important too. I mean, this all sounds absolutely joyous, I have to say. Tell us a little bit about the choirs that you're working with and, and how you how you found them and brought them together.
4: So the singers that make up our amazing Herring Girls chorus have never sung together in this form before, but they have got a relationship to their own choir and there are three different... Well, actually, sort of more than three, about four different choirs that we've smooshed together for this. It's mixed-gender choir. Everyone on stage represents the Herring Girls at points. We've got Group A Choir from um, Britain Peers Arts. We've got a primary school choir from Kesington Primary. And we've got the Voice Cloud Choir, an incredible group of adults that come from a different mix of choirs run by the incredible Stephen and Paul, who are all spending their weekly rehearsals learning the material. And we are going to put this together, only having met together for the first time, on the 20th of May. We're basically putting this together off of two mass rehearsal days so what i'm excited by is it's going to be quite a lot of like live energy of like pulling together on stage much like i imagine the herring girls would have done when they did their strike mm-hmm. in 36 and drawing strength from that feeling of numbers around you uh, the greater than we are alone premise which runs through this whole thing the idea of being that that performer with other performers around you and singing in harmony that is going to be really real because this certainly isn't going to be over rehearsed let me tell you it's going to be it's going to be just the right, right amount of rehearsal and that comes from all these different choirs who've given up their time every week to be a part of this they all responded to a call out i think they felt like it was something they wanted to get their teeth into and the incredible first light festival i'm yet to experience has got a really amazing reputation in the area i think the chance to be on the main stage and open the festival in front of thousands of people who can bring their families there for free, listening to the waves crash on the beach and the seagulls steal your chips and all that stuff. That's, that is going to be a big moment. You are both up to quite a lot of
1: other things. What's, what's next for you after this?
4: This project has been a real gift to work on. I've really enjoyed the process. I'm looking to make more space for more writing. I want to make a one-woman show. I mean, I don't know what it's going to be about yet. But maybe the Herring Girls will, in some form, inspire me. And I'm going to be continuing working with my incredible choir. Lips—they remind me of this Herring Girls chorus in the sense that when they feel good, they sound really good. Like they—they they can't fake it. Like they're incredible. It's real. So we are working towards a Lipsmus slash Christmas gig on December the sixteenth with an incredible band. And I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into that. And um, that's going to be a celebration of the power of having your voice heard so again a real link to this work great hannah what about you
1: i've
3: got four main things on the go at the moment but then yeah looking to see what comes next there's always that thing where you go oh what's around the corner and so i've got a book that's out at the moment called sensitive, it's a non-fiction book and I'm just doing bits of work on that. I've just started a project this week at a food bank in North Cambridge doing a poetry embroidery project to make a big like wall hanging for sort of mental it's mental health support really and it's launched really well and that's been really amazing to get off the ground. Just started another project on a maternity ward working with midwives and women who are in hospital pre giving birth for all kinds of very complicated reasons being commissioned to make a series of poems for awards which are going to be made into sort of big wall art by a very good graphic designer and then this one i am organizing a treasure hunt this is happening in two weeks for 200 people called radical women of cambridge about radical women of cambridge where they have to solve clues to get from place to place and it's a big it's a big organization that are doing it and it's all of their staff so i need to get my organizing hat on and get it with that
1: what's sensitive about
3: it is about giving more value to the trait and value of sensitivity because we so dramatically undervalue it you know it's mm. almost like an insult that gets held at people particularly for young men um it's more socially acceptable for women to say that they're sensitive but basically the book is me interviewing lots of different specialists trying to help get sensitivity a better story because i'm very sensitive and my kid is too and i suddenly realized how problematic it was to have a bad story about it so
1: it has connotations now doesn't it like oh you're a snowflake like you know you just kick off at anything
3: yeah we know what we mean by calling somebody sensitive negatively but what what are the benefits of that what what are the offers when i began the book when i was commissioned to begin the book i thought it was a story about like how do individuals learn to navigate a world which like is not designed for them like how what skills do you have to learn to be heard in spaces like how do you learn to amplify your voice, but in mm. ways that feels comfortable for you. And then when I started researching it, I was slightly horrified to realize that it's a story about capitalism. Mm. <laughs> the system that we live in and what traits we value for the convenience of a system that like, over commodifies particular parts of us and, I, and how now neurodivergence is becoming more and more like something that everybody's aware of and we're so aware that there's such diversity of thinking types, why is it suitable to therefore have a system where we're like, it's about being harder, faster, better, more, when actually that doesn't work for like about 70% of the population who go, actually that breaks me. And so, like, why do we keep insisting? Because that's how it is. And you're like, well, it's not, it doesn't really work for anyone. So it turned out to be not the story that I thought I was writing. Well, which I mean, is
1: fun. it sounds like a story I want to read. So Herring Girls, Greater Than We Are Alone, will be opening the High Tide Festival at 12.15 on Lowestoft Beach on Saturday the 17th of June. Where can we follow you both on the socials to keep up to date with what you're doing next?
4: You can follow me on Insta. My name is so long, but it's J Marion Davis, basically. And if you're interested in Lips Choir, feminist, trans-inclusive pop choir, then just check us out, Lips Choir.
3: And you can follow me on Instagram under the handle Hannah Janster.
1: Thank you both so much for joining me. This has been a delightful interview and all the best with the performance.
3: Thank you. Thank
4: you so much.
0: Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by author and total smasher, Liz Hyder. Liz, hello.
5: Hello, how are you? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm really good. How's that coffee? It's just the decaf, actually, because I did cane real coffee earlier and I thought I should probably watch my caffeine intake before I get too wired and sort of fling myself out the window.
0: Woo! I don't want to ruin your mystique, but you and I are women of a
5: certain age and I find caffeine after 1pm means I'm probably not going to sleep for three days. Oh, uh, yeah, my cut-off is midday, basically. Okay. Yeah, totally. I, I'm allowed one tea, one coffee. I've had two. <laughs> it's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> toosh, toosh. Yeah, it'll be like, it <laughs> be <laughs> Anyway, mate, I've got to say, I am
0: loving seeing the phrase much-loved used in front of author in descriptions of you.
5: Ah, oh, that's nice. Oh, I, I haven't seen them. Yeah, much-loved and much-lauded. So, you know, woo you. Oh, that's really nice. Has made my day. That has.
0: <laughs> Before we get to your latest novel, any news on film adaptations of Bear Mouth or The Gifts? Please and thank you.
5: So Bear Mouth, I had a little update on yeah, just last week actually, which is they've got a really good script together. They're really happy with the script, and they've got an amazing director and team attached. who I can't tell you about. Oh. Cause I'm sworn to secrecy. It's very exciting. And so, yeah, they're shortly going out for for funding, basically. Fingers crossed. It might actually happen. I mean, I'm very kind of... I know how hard it is to get, like, TV or film stuff to go through all the various green lights. It is like and another red light, and you've got to wait till it colour changes to green. If it ever happens, I will be over the moon. Yeah, so we'll see. But no, the gifts... Yeah, I haven't sold TV and film rights to that, or, or to the illusions, actually. Yeah, we'll see. Okay. Fingers but crossed. They are both very... Filming. So yeah, The Illusions, your latest novel, explores
0: the fascinating overlap between the golden age of British magic and early film pioneers. Tell us a little bit more about it and what inspired it, please.
5: It's a sort of rollicking read, kind of like a little sort of adventurous story. Um, it's set in Bristol in 1896, so it's kind of tail end of the Victorian era, whereas The Gifts was 1840s, so much earlier. And, yeah, it explores that overlap between magicians and really early film pioneers. And it is genuinely true, and I still can't believe this is true, as I say these words that are going to come out of my mouth. Magicians played a really crucial role in early film, not just in developing the language of it, like the first jump cut, the first point of view shot, but also popularising it, taking it around the country, introducing it. It's a really weirdly fascinating, bonkers overlap that I just don't think enough people know about, so... I wanted to explore that basically. It is about magic and film, but it is also a bit of a love letter to theater and live performance and finding your place in the world and celebrating kind of the importance of friendship as well. But it does have a little dark theme running through it as well. I wrote it because I love theater and I love live performance and I did start drafting it in lockdown. I always get really emotional when I say this, so I will try not to cry, but it's that thing when all the theatres went dark, I kind of felt like we needed them more than ever, mm. really. And so a lot of that went into the book. It's, a, uh, I hope, a fun a fun, rollicking read, but yeah, with that little seam of darkness that is threaded through it.
0: It's utterly wonderful. I raced through it. And I don't mean that in a skim read, where I just meant I was like, it was such a total page turner. I nearly missed my stop on the train quite a few times while I was reading the illusions. Yes. I think that is every author's dream, isn't it? They ended up in Thamesmead, what? <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, that is totally the dream where it's like, that you're so into that world. And I wanted it to feel really immersive. So I did a, a lot of research, as I kind of always do. And then loads of it doesn't make it into the book because it's about kind of getting that feel for it. But, you know, Bristol in 1896, is so fascinating going to Bristol now and knowing that they were the first city in Britain to have electric trams. And now they don't have electric trams. And the traffic is just crazy there and it's completely gridlocked. It's so interesting seeing how kind of pioneering they were as a city, but they didn't have an early film industry really, not like Leeds, Bradford, Brighton and London. They're the kind of four main ones. And I felt it was always really weird that Bristol didn't have one. So I wanted to kind of, I felt like it was only right that my fictional, (laughs) my fictional early film pioneers were in Bristol. And it's a city. Yeah. It's a city I love. So it felt, yeah, appropriate to set it there.
0: You have tended to set your novels in the past. Do you think you'd have done well in the past?
5: I don't know. I mean, I'm really short-sighted. So, um, glasses would have been a real issue. Right. Like genuinely, <laughs> glasses would have been such an issue because now we've got like really good, like thinning off technology and so on. But I am genuinely kind of very sort of myopic in <laughs> my vision. So if anyone else who's short-sighted, I'm like minus 12 and 13, which is like, halfway gone you know <laughs> and my glasses are fairly thick by modern standards and it's like back then they'd have been like almost too heavy to wear like proper bottom of a bottle mm-hmm. Um so that would have been an issue I would have been yeah I would have found it really frustrating in lots of ways like lots of women <laughs> really did at the time yeah I don't know I mean I'd love to go in my little time machine and just go back and you have a time machine yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's in my head <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> oh okay so I don't know if you can borrow it. But it, yeah, I would love to go back and see some of those magicians perform and see some of those early films and not just see the films, but see the audience around you and how they react as well. And it's so interesting researching this because you can see for sort of the first time the difference between photography and moving images. Mm-hmm. So David DuBont, who's one of my, my secret dead Victorian husband, I'm, I'm wildly in love with David <laughs> Bon. He's such an amazing man. Like His motto really was all done by kindness. When people said, oh, my God, that was an amazing trick. How did you do it? He would say, all done by kindness. And he was such a lovely, kind, generous man. He did have the most terrible moustache, but I, I will totally forgive him for that. It was definitely always time. shave it off, right? Yeah. But yeah, I'd love to have gone back and seen some of his magic tricks. I think that would have been an extraordinary kind of thing to see. But it's so interesting with Devon because when you see photos of him, you see this slightly kind of stolid man with this terrible moustache and like hair slicked back and you're a bit like, eh. You know, and you read so much, like he's so charismatic and so charming and he moves so beautifully. And you see these photos of him and you sort of think, really? <laughs> <laughs> that man? And then you see the film of him. And then when you see him perform and you see him smile and you see how animated he is, he's not dead. He's still alive. And that immortality that film kind of confers on you. Is such a fascinating thing to play with, and and that was you know that was absolutely questioned at the time. Like, oh, you know, what's the responsibility of this new technology? As there always, is with new technology. Like, what do we do? How do we control it? What do we do with it? And you know, the other idea of conferring immortality among mortal people mm-hmm. through well, immortalizing them on, on celluloid. It was a question that people wrestled with in the same way that at the moment we're all wrestling with AI and will it destroy us all?
0: I mean, the answer's. Clearly, yes, I think.
5: (laughs) But going back to to the early
0: films, the early moving pictures, there's a line in your book where one of the characters, one of the minor characters is told that it's the devil's work and it can't be trusted. But that was absolutely what people thought. They did not trust this at all.
5: Yeah, I mean, some people really were very nervous about it, um, as they were with photography. And there is that whole thing of you know if you take a photograph of someone that you capture like a little part of their soul that Mm -hmm. something of them is caught in it which is a really old i think i think it's really deeply ingrained in us that having an image of yourself can create all sorts of different problems but you know other people really embraced it magicians really were the first bunch of people to kind of go wow this is cool this is like the ultimate magic trick how can we use it how can we incorporate it in our acts what can we create with it really and I love that, that kind of excitement, that explosion of creativity and that sort of almost space race element of how can we improve this? What can we do next? So the films are very short, they're between 20 and 28 seconds. So then people start working out that they can double the reels of film. In the first 15 years, from like 1895 to you know 1910, you can see that language of film, that visual language, you can really see it developing in front of your eyes almost. It's amazing.
0: I didn't know the link until we chatted uh a year and a bit ago about the gifts and you mentioned what you were working on next and you mentioned that it was about cinema and about magic. And so, yeah, I had a little read around. But actually, as soon as you know it, it's kind of obvious. Even the language that's still used <laughs> in film, isn't it? Like the special effects and the cinema magic. That key moment in a film where you go, oh my God, how did they do that? Particularly when it's not CGI, still can stop you in your tracks.
5: Yeah, completely, and you know, and that some of the stuff was invented by accident. It is that experimentation and that trying to kind of beat the others, trying to kind of like best the other filmmakers. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something better than you, you know. And George Melies, who I think is probably the most famous uh-huh. magician filmmaker, he did invent the jump car, you know, and he did do it in a way that I completely stole for the book because also Melies was a storyteller, and so he says that he invented it in that way which was that basically a bit of film got stuck in his camera while he was filming some traffic. And then by the time he'd managed to dislodge it and make it work again, all the traffic had changed in front of him. So there is like an omnibus that changes into a hearse, mm-hmm. And then a group of men turn into a group of women with like bonnets and dresses. And I mean, it's, you know, a great visual gag and a double visual gag. And I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, it, it kind of, who cares? Like, it's just such a great story, right? But yeah, that kind of experimentation is is fantastic. But it is that whole thing of, we had our own equivalent as George Melies. It's just that he's not well-known in the same way like Walter Booth. He was an extraordinary performer. He worked with David Devon. He was a brilliant artist. So he used to do like lightning sketches, they call it, which is basically like quick drawing. So I was like, lightning sketches? Why is he just drawing lightning? <laughs> I mean, it's niche. Um, so he'd do like, uh, caricatures and stuff on stage. And he was a brilliant magician. So he worked with David Devon at the Egyptian Hall, which was Britain's home of magic at the time. And then he went on to make films and create the first animate, the first British animated film and, you know, sort of pioneering special effects, really. He was brilliant. And unless you're really geeky about really early film, no one's heard of him. And it's such a shame. He is also unbelievably beautiful. You're just a horny woman tapping into history's fit (laughs) men. I am totally finding all the beautiful Victorian people. Yeah. My dead man crushes. Yeah, David Devon is really my dead man crush, but I have got a soft spot for to And he did a brilliant film in 1903, I think. I think it's 1903. Artistic creation where he draws, he has this sort of sheet of paper and he draws a woman on it and she comes to life. He draws like her, her face and she comes to life and he sort of takes the face off the board and puts it down to one side. And then she's quite cross that she's just like, it's all silent, obviously, That she's quite cross that she's just a head. And so he's like, oh, and so he draws her like a bodice and then arms and legs and stuff. And so he assembles kind of like his ideal woman, really. She's got a bit of attitude and she's quite cheeky. And then he draws a baby on this bit of paper and she takes one look at this drawing and runs off stage. (laughs) And then he picks the baby up and looks around and realises she's gone and then comes towards the camera and, like, offers you the baby. And it's just such a – it's still a funny film. And we're pretty sure that the woman in it who plays this kind of, you know – Woman with a bit of attitude that she's like, well, that's fine. I've got a head. Where's the rest of me? And, you know, she's got a real kind of character. We think that that's his wife, Sarah. And I love that he's just roped her in. But, and I don't know really anything much about her. But yeah, Walter Booth's a really interesting, interesting man, I think. Let's talk about magic because magic was a very male dominated area
0: and it still is. I guess it is a hangover from us women being hanged, drowned or burned as witches, even for, you know, very unmagical doings. A little side note, I had a look to see if there were some famous women magicians that I hadn't heard of, because inevitably there would be, and discovered Britain's greatest close-up magician is a woman, and her name is Fay Presto. I mean, she's won, as far as I'm concerned. She <laughs> has won maybe the internet. I wondered if you had ever
5: dabbled in magic. Uh, n- no. I promise not to burn you. <laughs> <If> you <have. laughs> I love magic. I think magic is well, magic—it's extraordinary to see someone defy laws of physics and defy a kind of reality in front of you—is such an extraordinary thing. But you have to have such patience and dedication to it. In the same way that I, I know I could never be a stop frame animator because yeah. I would have squashed those fucking plasticine figures <laughs> after <chicas off> about <laughs> half an hour. You're like, why? Why is it's melting? Yeah, squish. I, I just. <laughs> I'm not the most patient person and magic requires such dedication and such practice. In order to be a really, really good magician, you need that absolute almost obsession with it. And then on top of that, which is why I find it so fascinating, that you need the performance element and you need the practice element and you need to be able to put all those things together. So it's like storytelling, practice and flair as well. To put all those things together, it's extraordinary. So you are acting while you're on stage, but you're also acting several different things. You're acting the person who is sort of misleading them whilst you're trying to do something else. That kind of multitasking element of it, I just find amazing. And I'm so impressed by it because, you know, having dabbled in acting myself some many years ago, (laughs) just learning your lines and standing up and doing lines on stage and performing is enough, then you're also doing magic tricks at the same time and then things can go wrong and how do you cover that i just yeah I'm. It it is fascinating but no i don't have the patience to do it basically yeah i think i'd be too clumsy i think one of the reasons as well that it, for so long it was dominated by men and particularly in that victorian period as well is that we didn't women didn't have the right clothes for it we didn't have po- pockets 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 we can pockets. bang on about pockets the sleeves are different and the sleeves are much more generally fit, more fitted on women's clothing. So you don't have the opportunity to just like slide a card up your sleeves. Like, oh, hey, oh, oh no, my cuff's too tight. You know, <laughs> it's a different different outfit. And also a lot of card tricks, men generally have larger hands. And so, you know, women are at a disadvantage for a lot of the things that are seen as traditional magic at that time, really. But women were really involved in it. I mean, like, you know, David de wife was his assistant on stage. Women are involved. And I think it's that thing of it's a bit like with um, the lovely Debbie McGee that everyone's like, oh, Debbie McGee was Paul's assistant. Well, yes, yeah, she was, but actually she's his co-performer. Yeah. Without her, none of those magic tricks really kind of work. She is someone who is setting stuff up. She is willing. She is also there as a distraction. Yep, she is totally. there to ensure that the tricks work. And so she's not a, an assist, assistant is a really bad name for it. That's not what you are. You are a co-performer. You know, you don't say oh, when someone's playing, I don't know, Macbeth, that Lady Macbeth is like an assistant. You know, it's like <laughs> everyone who comes on stage has a part to play in that show, really, in that trick. And I've yeah, I found that that's really interesting. And there's a Ade- um Adelaide Herman, who I'm who I am a little bit obsessed with. She's the other London Adele that we should all know about. So she was born in London, the daughter of uh Belgian immigrants, Adele Starsis and had an absolute passion for kind of performance and dance and all things theatrical from a really young age, and then basically joined a performance troupe and then ended up marrying Alexander Herman, who was a really kind of brilliant, prominent magician. And she became his co-performer, not assistant, but she performed in drag with him as Mr. Alexander on stage, which I just love. It's kind of gloriously subversive in a really beautiful way. And then when he died, which was in 1896, when the illusions is set, she carried on performing, basically, as the headline act. I love her. And no one's heard of her. And you're like, she is pretty much the first really famous female magician in her own right. And I feel, yeah, we should celebrate her more, really. Definitely. And Yay Women It is your third time on the podcast, Liz. And that's not just because I like
0: you. But it's also because you've got a real thing for writing strong female leads inspired by actual women from history so tell me a bit more about your photographer and early filmmaker edie carlton and their real life counterparts the inspirations behind them please
5: Ah, oh, i'm very fond of easy i gave edie curly i need to tell you why i get gave... so edie's got curly hair and lives in the house that i lived down in bristol for two years <laughs> but edie is not right i've got curly hair i should say to people I wanted to give her curly hair because, um, a friend of mine, Susan Stakes Chapman wrote this brilliant book, Pandora, in which Dora, the main character in it, has got curly hair and Susan's got the most poker straight hair you've ever seen in your life. And I was like, what is no, like, right, right I'm taking the curly representation back. <laughs> and so I knew that I was going to give Edie curly hair. She's a photographer and she's a film a really early film pioneer. There's not really anyone who's a kind of early filmmaker in exactly the way that she is in 1896, but there are women involved in film like, really early on. There's Laura Bailey, who's really interesting, who's Brighton-based, who is just the funniest, like, comedy actress. I mean, genuinely, properly. You watch some of her films now and and they still have people rolling around in the aisles and laughter. Like, she has got funny bones, that will But she also made films. And we know definitely by 1898 she was making films because there's a newspaper article interviewing her husband, who was also a cinematographer, a magician-turned-cinematographer, and she comes in and basically takes one of the cameras out. She's going to go and film with it. So we, we know for a fact by 1898, really? she is definitely making films. So she's really fascinating. She's been overshadowed, I think, by George Albert Smith, who is her husband. And then Ellen Paul, who was married to Robert W. Paul, who's sort of seen as the father of the British film industry. And Ellen's an actress and she kind of meets Robert because he needs some performers for, for one of his films. And they get together quite quickly and they get married. I'd love to really delve into the archives more with her because Robert is an electrical engineer and that's not to take anything away from him. He is an extraordinary inventor and a brilliant, brilliant producer and he's amazing in so many ways. But you can't seriously think that that he knew necessarily how to work with actors or how to direct things or how to stage manage things. Whereas you have Ellen there, who kind of is the yin to his yang. Mm -hmm. I see them sort of working really well together. Again, we know from when Robert died that it sort of says about Ellen being his producer and the cinematographer. She definitely works alongside him, but they've been slightly rubbed out, these women in early film. And there's, there's been a lot of work done recently and is that is continuing now to try and really delve into these women and bring them out of the shadows, really, back into the spotlight. Because it is a collaborative thing. At this stage, there isn't really... You can't really say, oh, someone's a director or someone's this, that or the other. It's like everyone would have mucked in because you just need to get the thing done. So anyone who's ever made a short film nowadays will know that, yeah, you can make it yourself on your iPhone or whatever, but actually it is that collaborative spirit of someone doing a little bit of music and someone else doing a bit of this and someone else, you know, oh, I'll borrow that hat from someone that will fit perfectly. It is that kind of happenstance, serendipity. And this technology is so new. They're working out how to use it, how to work with it, and, and kind of what to do. And I think it is a really, yeah, fascinating, fascinating time period. Ellen's been completely in the shadow of, of of Robert Paul. And understandably, because he is sort of the big name and he went on to do lots of other really interesting, exciting things. But she was his collaborator. And I I think it's important to shine a light on those women, really. And I love your passion,
0: and listeners, the passion really comes through in Liz's writing as well. So The Illusions is published by Manila Press on June the 22nd, but available for pre-order now. Uh, I know that you seemingly can't stop writing, Liz, so I'm going to assume you're already working on something.
5: (laughs) I am, yeah. Where can people follow you to find out what it is that you're up to? I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. And although I don't live in London anymore, I've lived in Shropshire for like 13 years. My handle is still at London Bessie. So Bessie is the nickname that all my family kind of give me. So I'm, I'm Bessie to all my family, but I'm Liz to kind of all my, all my friends. Don't ask. It's long and complicated. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just London Bessie. So find me on there or just, yeah, find my website. And I try and kind of put things up there occasionally when things are ready to be about.
1: you play ball like a girl go on do one kid jenny off the blocks welcome to jenny off the blocks that time of the week where we are pivoting on the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport Congratulations to Loughborough Lightning, who beat London Pulse 57-48 to win a second Netball Super League title last weekend. Loughborough came from behind to draw a level by halfway through the third quarter to eventually claim victory. A little reminder that the Netball World Cup takes place this summer from the 28th of July, if this is the kind of news that interests you. Congratulations also to Iga Swiatek who claimed her third French Open title last week and her fourth Grand Slam. She beat Karolina Machova 6-2, 5-7, 6-4, coming back after dropping the second set. So she holds on to the number one world ranking, though she could have lost it this tournament, slipping behind potentially Irina Sabalenka or Elena Rybakina. Those are the three to watch at the moment, really dominating the scene. While we're on the subject of the French Open, the tournament has come under criticism this year and... It's a pretty regular criticism at the moment for its disproportionately favourable scheduling of the men's draw. Notably, world number no. three, Jessica Pegula said that the lack of night sessions in the women's draw were, and I quote disappointing. Emily Moresmo, who you may remember, is a former pro herself and uh, at one point was Andy Murray's coach. She's the tournament director now for the French Open and she's responded to those comments. Moresmo has defended the tournament, stating that the prime slots were more balanced, that day slots were fine. But while she agrees that they could be better on some of the night slots, some of the higher profile players who were offered them did not actually want them. They didn't want to play at night. There was also a bit of criticism of the crowd, who were deemed to be a bit less than sportsmanly at times. What I would say to that is, lads, I mean, this isn't Wimbledon. The Roland Garros crowd has always been a little bit more lads on tour, shall we say. In football, congratulations to Manchester City's men's team, who have successfully bought themselves the treble, Alexa, what are the financial fair play rules? I'm asking for Pep Guardiola. Uh, yeah, no, uh, sports watching it is finest, but I, I don't know. Is it maybe maybe it's a good thing for English football to have an English team win the Champions League? Maybe I don't know. Some good news in women's football that WSL club revenues were up sixty percent before the Lionesses Euro victory. So that is the season before the victory took place. And that news has just been released this week, so I assume that we are hoping for an even greater increase still following the win, which saw a 200% rise in attendances. That said, as the game gets bigger, the wages get higher, and so there was an aggregate pre tax loss of £14 million to clubs overall. Let's hope for some better broadcast deals soon. Speaking of which, dum dum dum, what's happening with the World Cup broadcast deal? Well, at the point of recording, absolutely nothing. Wild. That is all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sports. Welcome to
2: Rated or Dated. Jen. This week we watch the origin story of Dominic Cummings, otherwise known as
1: This week we watched Rosemary's Baby, directed by Roman Polanski, we'll get to him, who also wrote the screenplay based on the book of the same name by Ira Levin. Polanski had already directed a couple of films, but was enticed to the US by then head of Paramount Studios, Robert Evans, with the promise of directing Downhill Racer. But he then asked him to read Levin's novel, to see if it could be made into a film. Yes siree, said Polanski after reading it in one night and wrote the screenplay in three weeks. Whether or not that shows in the finished product, which was released in 1968, you be the judge. Hmm. Or will be the judges. The film was a huge success, making $33.4 million from a budget of 3.2 and establishing Polanski as a Hollywood director. It stars Mia Farrow as titular character Rosemary Woodhouse alongside John Cassavetes as husband Guy with Ruth Gordon and Sidney Blackmer as diabolical neighbours Minnie and Mm. Roman Castavet. Or is that Stephen Mercato? Let's ask Morris Evans as friend of our protagonist. Oh, no, we can't. He's died an untimely and really quite suspicious death. OK, I'm teasing you. Shall we have the plot? <laughs> Rosemary and Guy are a young married couple looking for a flat. She's a housewife, he's an actor, and she's ready to get knocked up. Off they pop to view an apartment in New York City. Not that one, says their buddy Hutch. It's got a dark past linked to witchcraft and murder. But would you look at that very dark room with lots of dying plants in it and a secret cupboard? Why wouldn't that be a perfect place for a nursery? What? (laughs) The previous owner recently died? No bother. They'll take it.
0: I love that bit where she goes, did she die in the apartment? And the estate agent says, no. And she goes, not that it matters. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care. It would matter
1: to me. (laughs) It would matter quite a lot to me. Shortly thereafter, a series of strange events unfold. Rosemary meets neighbour Terry, a recovering drug addict, living with elderly neighbours, Minnie and Roman. She's wearing a good luck charm that's pretty but stinky, and apparently that Tannis Root is not very lucky after all, because, I've got some bad news for you, she plummets to her death shortly thereafter. Having met the neighbours and had a series of lucid dreams about nuns, somehow... The Woodhouses start being mates with the Castevets, despite disapproving of almost everything about them, and Guy gets elevated from Yamaha commercials to Broadway hits after the lead actor suddenly goes blind. Mm. There'll be a few more opportunities for that, Hannah. Don't worry. Among all this, Rosemary continues to have lucid dreams, one in which only Catholics are allowed on a sex boat and then (laughs) only pensioners are allowed in a sex flat. The sex is all with lucky old Rose, who wakes up a bit scratched. How could that have happened? Guy cut his nails after all. (laughs) He also had sex with her while she was asleep, he says. Don't want to miss that baby-making window, Rosemary doesn't seem that fuss to be honest. After all, it was a different time, wasn't it, Roman Polanski? More on him later. <laughs> well, look, details, details. Rosemary is uppeth the duffeth, delighted and 100% cool with those old sex neighbours dictating almost every aspect of her pregnant life, who her doctor is, what she eats, where she goes. Nothing weird about that. Or the fact that she's losing loads of weight and looking like a bag of rancid spanners, which is, after all, what you'd expect with pregnancy, maybe. Hutch isn't sure about all this. Let's have a conflab about it, he says. But, oh shit, he's gone into a coma and nobody knows if he'll ever wake up. He does, just in time to pass on a book and an unnecessarily cryptic message about how her neighbours are actually Satan-worshipping witches. She is done with those old fucks, except husband Guy isn't. So that's a problem. Bitches be crazy after all. Trying to take control of the situation, Rosemary fails miserably. She's told the baby has died. But what is that sound? A bit like a crying baby she hears in the distance. Oh, it's her baby in a very subtly adorned crib covered in black lace with a cross hanging upside down above it. Festive. And who are these sex pensioners surrounding the babe? And what is wrong with his eyes? Want to have a guess? Fun fact, Robert Redford and Jack Nicholson were both considered for the role of Guy, and both of whom would have made pretty decent sex pensioners. <laughs> still still would, I guess. They've grown yeah. into that role. I mean, Redford quite recently, as discussed on this podcast. And Jack Nicholson quite yeah. recently on this podcast. Yeah. Sex pensioners. Although, with a with a
2: ponytail, don't make me think about that again.
1: Yeah, so Polanski wanted his own fiancé Sharon Tate to play Rosemary, but producers wanted a bigger name, and so Farrow took the lead. Inexplicably, Farrow was nominated for a handful of awards for her turn, including a BAFTA and a Golden Globe. Explicably, she didn't win either. Ruth Gordon, on the other hand, took home the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for her turn, as well as the Golden Globe. Polanski was also nominated for a number of awards for his screenplay. Critics liked it, quite often makes 100 scariest movies lists. It has a 96% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes and is now considered a classic of the genre. As is often discussed, I am a wuss and I have never watched this before. In fact, I was actually scared about watching my own rated or dated <laughs> pick. Turns out my fears were largely unfounded. Hannah Mick, had you seen this one before?
0: I had, a, no.
2: I had, yes. I saw it at university. And although I can't remember much about it, apart from just being really struck at how terrible I thought Mia Farrow was in it, that was the thing that, that really leapt out me. But I will say I did watch it with one of those boring people who were like, oh, you know why Rosemary's Baby is like genius? So me being the contrary person I am, automatically just didn't like it the first time I watched it because of that and because I thought Farrow was awful. I thought there was more to enjoy this time round, but for an entirely different reason. But I will say, it's certainly making me look forward to being a Catholic pensioner.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. I don't think Farrow is terrible in it. So there we go. I'm just going to put that out there now and see if Hannah fires me.
2: Well, I don't know that I've got the power to do that. Interestingly... She got this over Sharon Tate because she was regarded as more famous. But Mm. one of the main reasons she was regarded as more famous was that she just married Frank Sinatra.
1: So that does seem quite, yeah, that to
2: me sums up the the skills of Mia Farrow.
1: I think she's of her time in this. I think she, I think she seems like she's acting in the style of that time, which is a bit. She's shit. a bit OTT yeah. and
0: clipped. But also, it's quite a tough role, and I don't think that is an excuse for an actress to be shit in it or regarded as shit in it. But she has to be fragile, look a bit like she might be going mad as it all in her head, and also have been raped by the devil. It's a tricky mix. It's an, I don't <laughs> yeah. know that I could pull it off, if I'm honest. Yeah,
2: a little bit like when we watched A Streetcar Named Desire. Because Cassavetes is the kind of much more naturalistic actor, and she's the much more stagey mm. actor, I feel like those two clash a bit, but not... For the reason that they clash in... Because there's a point to them clashing in A Streetcar Named Desire and there's not really a point to it in this.
0: I don't think he's great in it, which is a shame because I really love Casavetes, and I think he's great in nearly everything. But I, I don't think he quite inhabits Guy.
1: I think it's a bit surprising that it was as successful as it was... At the time, what do you think?
0: I mean, it's hard to judge because I'm not of that time. But I, I know I think it's it's quite an intriguing premise. I love mm. that the novel of Rosemary's Baby came out in June 1966 six six six. It's very clever. Yeah, uh, and Levin's book was hugely hugely popular. Mm. And you know the birds and that kind of Hitchcockian they are quite stilted when we watch them now because we are so much more used to, as Hannah's just said, those naturalistic performances. But I do think it's of its time. I do think it's sort of almost blamed for the start of the Satanic Panic, right? Because this is a film that was cursed. A lot of people died in mysterious ways. Some of them which were sort of written into the script and then happened. And obviously what happened to Sharon Tate and therefore to Polanski and also the composer died and someone else involved with it was very poorly but recovered but I think of its time it's it's a good horror I think it does you know for us it was just a lolfest. fest I had a lovely time it's very very funny which obviously isn't what is intended although I do think some of the funny lines are intended but yeah it, it has that intrigue it's it builds things it is that mm. kind of psychological thriller of is she going mad Is you know she's a woman who's being controlled by men all the time, which is very 1960s, and that discussion was there. And I think I understand why it was so popular yeah. in its time.
2: I've got something to add to it that we won't get, obviously. Well, we might. <laughs> or a lot of this country wouldn't get, but America would get, is that the Dakota itself is quite a famous building. I say the reason we won't get it is because now the Dakota's most famous for the fact that that's where John Lennon lived when he was shot. So that adds to the spooky, weird premise of the Dakota. But in itself, it's a quite daunting looking building and it's a famous New York building. So I think that made it much, much more believable for people in New York to go, oh my God, it's set in that, you know, that spookiest shit looking building. It's actually really interesting because at that point, it's sort of, from a historical point of view, a jobbing actor could afford to live in that building. Yeah. And I read a thing about it a while ago I think it was when I was reading about Males I think it's Albert Males one of the Males brothers who does Grey Gardens used to live in the Dakota and he tried to sell it and now it's basically because there was a period where it was really artsy Loads of artsy people live there, which is obviously the period that this is sort of leading up to. He tried to sell his flat and the only people that could afford it basically were Melanie Griffith and Antonio Banderas. But the board said no, they didn't want those sort of people living there. So now it's become this really like just mega expensive. So it's quite an interesting building for the history of New York.
0: But it's also interesting sticking with the Dakota for another moment. That whole thing. So when... Obviously, the Manson family brutally murdered Sharon Tate. Helter Skelter was scrawled, spelt differently. And there was the start of that whole thing that the Beatles had started this satanic panic. The mm. White Album was actually code for devil worshippers. And then John Lennon was killed outside the building and lived in the building that was in Rosemary's baby, connected to Roman Polanski. There's all these kind of weird, spooky links, if you're into that kind of thing. Mm. But as I said at the top of this, I'm one of the three quarters. No conspiracy theories <laughs> for me. Thank you very much.
1: So apparently... Although this went completely over my head. So I wonder what you guys thought about it. Apparently one of the themes of this film is women's liberation.
2: Yeah. Well, I would say on a serious note, if I was trying to steal man what this film is, Hmm. I would say, and forgive me because I've never had children, it's that when a woman gets pregnant, the whole world wants a fucking opinion on what she should do. Tells her what to eat, how to live, what to wear, all of that stuff. And that maybe we should back the fuck off and let pregnant women do whatever they
0: like. She has very little ownership over her own pregnancy. And in one of the most disturbing scenes for me, and genuinely Mm. disturbing, even though you know it's going to happen, because this is now a film that we didn't need to see to know what it, Mm. it is, right? Is when she finally gets the wherewithal to run away. She makes her escape, even though she's like been drugged up and all sorts of things. Runs to a doctor she thinks can help her puts her trust in this this mm. man who's in a position of power, and he fucking lets her down he just calls them in he pretends yeah. he believes her, but at this point she is unhinged because she's been gaslit for like nearly nine months, but Levin actually wrote the novel while his wife was pregnant, and it was his fears around pregnancy and all of the things that could maybe go wrong or happen to the baby like it ends up being the spawn of satan surely you had that worry when you were pregnant Jane? oh
1: yeah massively it's funny because obviously i agree with all of those points like you do kind of lose ownership of your body a bit and there are lots of people with (laughs) opinions and blah 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 but despite having had a child myself i did not really pick up on any of that i have to say
0: chap nicholson's in this twice as well don't probably not mentioned it
1: (laughs) i think of course
0: as well
2: in 1968 it's easy for us to forget that at that point you still didn't really know what you were going to get you know because you weren't getting a scan so you know Mm. i suppose it was much more easier to buy into the notion you know the devil's child could just emerge from someone when we now would go i'm sure they'd have picked that up at the six-week scan or something. Hey, your kid's got horns. <laughs> or oh, there's something really weird with his eyes. Not the sixth week, but you know.
1: But then also, so if it's about a concern about like women losing ownership of their bodies don't really want to go on about him to be honest but roman polanski doesn't seem like the most obvious candidate to be making that film does he
0: i think with hindsight it's really tricky because if you if you look quite deeply into rosemary's baby it's quite a feminist parable and while it's kind of i think lost a little bit in how fucking funny it is now when it's mm. not meant to be when you watch it in the same way that the birds is not a feminist parable but it's funny when it's meant to be scary yeah it is a story about of a woman desperately trying to get control of her own body and have control of what's going on in her body and men thwarting her at every turn. And so, yeah, I think it's quite effective. And with hindsight, the fact that Roman Polanski's behind this is really upsetting because we have to take into account his crime, which, you know, absolutely took away autonomy from a child, a female child. And so, yeah, there's that whole juxtaposition and the discussion of whether you can separate art from artist. But it was done prior to his crime, and I think that's why you can sort of separate art from I think it's
2: interesting as well that he wanted Sharon Tate for it. And, mm. I mean, clearly, <laughs> you could say that's because she was his girlfriend and he wanted to give her work. But the reason he gave for wanting Sharon Tate was that she was sort of older, wiser, ballsier than Mia Farrow. And therefore, the sort of, the pressure on... A woman that we had initially perceived as a strong woman would seem even more so, if that makes sense. He wanted Rosemary to start off at a, a position of strength, whereas she pretty much starts mm. off quite neutral, really.
0: She feels quite fragile, yes. I think, even when we first... Because she's so waif-like yeah. as well. She's so... so actually, that's
2: uh, interesting that the major criticism I would have of it is that Rosemary doesn't actually appear to have a personality. But like I say... He apparently wanted a bit more for her than that.
0: And the men want power, right? That's the whole point is, that, that, oh, as we look out of the window and it happens day after day after day, minute after minute, the men want power. And the way they can get this particular power, for Guy, it's to sell his wife and to sell their baby, or their baby mm. in inverted commas. And for Roman Cassavette, it's it's to harness the, the devil who is distinctively male in this particular yeah. film. But the power actually comes from women being able to give birth and to be able to to actually have the devil spawn, they need a woman. But all the power that comes from that goes to men. So it is very much a woman being used for male power. Mm.
1: So what about Minnie? Where do you put Minnie in this parable?
0: Women have always helped men have power. I don't know. Minnie's an interesting character. She's quite fun. I love that Ruth Gordon got an Oscar for her performance, but her performance is almost pantomimic yeah it's, it's glorious and i had a lovely time watching her and even when it's quite this, the whole bit where the devil is raping rosemary and the sex pensioners are all gathered round her and guys there and yet she's still calling chocolate moose mouse it's just hilarious yeah. like they really committed to a bit there i guess she's she's an assistant isn't she she's a glamorous assistant to roman who helps him get his power in the same way that women have quite often assisted. Powerful men get more power.
2: I mean, there's also the outside chance that she believes, you know, she's doing this for the devil rather than for her husband. Well, not believes, but it's it's genuinely committed to the bit in that sense. I fucking love Ruth Gordon, partly because it is quite so sort of, in the same way that I really, really love, But Davies, it's the kind of pantomimic bit of it that is incredible. Mm. I just think she's smashing. And that look is just so fucking great. That yellow shirt. Rosemary looks through the peephole and she's got the rollers in them. Yeah, it's just incredible.
0: I think Hannah's nailed it there. I think actually what Minnie's role is, is she's a believer. So she's potentially been groomed by Roman as well, or like had her beliefs played upon or planted in. And we're not sure. She doesn't really get a backstory, but she's in it. She's very much in it, isn't she? They're all very much in it. The brilliant bit at the end where Rosemary wants to rock her baby, they've all just shouted, Hail Satan! And which is, I don't know, it's just so funny.
2: The old lady whose character, I don't know what her name is, she's just the sort of person that you would find at like a, a WI type you know, fact. Minnie's
0: knitting partner yeah the
2: one that just says hi I was saying it's one of the funniest things in the world
0: that saying they had to watch that over and over again she's rocking the baby and Rosemary says oh you're rocking him too fast that's why he's crying yeah. so she goes over and takes over and it's again it's supposed to be quite sinister or it's supposed to be very sinister mm. Rosemary has literally discovered one her baby isn't actually dead two it is actually the devil's spawn it's going to mess your head up a little yeah. bit and she goes and takes over and as a woman walks away she sticks her tongue out at her It's so childish. She just goes, (laughs) I honked laughing so many times during this film, but that was an absolute choice moment. So lovely.
2: This is no dream. It's an example of one of those lines that's really famous before you've seen the film. And then when you actually see the delivery of it, you're like, was that it?
0: Yeah. Was that it? Yeah. It's a bit like
2: be afraid, be very afraid in that it's quite a flat delivery. It works better on a poster than it does in, in the film.
0: Yeah. For sure. Although I think my favourite line is, you're in Dubrovnik. I don't
1: see you. (laughs) Mine is, only Catholics allowed as they're getting on the sex boat. Well, like I say,
2: good for me and you, Mick oh Quaker <laughs> Jen here she's not going to have the retirement that we're going to have just oats literally oats
0: not metaphorical oats <laughs> I might have an issue with the idea that it's good for me and Hannah I don't know I'm still thinking about it I'll probably always be thinking about it Mickey, if you are 75
2: and you open an invitation that says sex boat you are going don't tell me you're not going
0: well I'm going because it'll be a chance to hang out with you because i know who sent it
2: <laughs> just me and you on a peddler <laughs>
0: <laughs> looking at a picture of Jeff what Jeff a sex Bridges. party <laughs> yeah just looking at a picture of Jeff Bridges for Hannah and a young Burt Reynolds on a rug for me I wonder if we can sell tickets there's not enough room on the pedal though.
1: <laughs> sorry Jen
0: we've absolutely
1: derailed this sadly I can't come along with that picture of Ian McShane with the pug <laughs> Anyway, well, on this uh, pedalo bombshell, (laughs) let's wrap this up, shall we, guys? Rated or dated? I just wanted to make it clear
2: that we managed to watch this and not give Roman Polanski any money. Well it seems to me hard given what I just said about not wanting to give Roman Polanski my money to say anything that has his filthy fingers all over it would be rated but also I think it's massively dated so yeah dated.
0: It is massively dated and loads of that is because of it's very of its time which you know kind of scuppers the whole theory behind this section of the show Mm. but it is like it reads really dated as well but oh I had a much more fun time Mm. than I was expecting and you know there's a chance that I might watch Rosemary's Baby again even though it still makes like you said the top 100 I've seen it in the top two scariest films of all time
1: yeah agreed on all of it it's 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 so terribly 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 dated but I did have a nice time watching it
0: well let's see if I can change the rated or dated outcome by making us watch A 1980s film about a computer. How could that possibly be dated?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's going to stand out, right.
0: I can't imagine we'll even notice it wasn't made this year. But in fact, (laughs) All Games with Matthew Broderick was made in 1983. And that is our poison for next week. I'm kind of looking forward to that. Mm. Oddly. Do you want to play a game, David? (laughs) Get on my sex boat.